Listening to your old friends Ron and Don on the Ron and Don Radio Network, man. <laughs> hey, you guys, what's going on? It's episode 364 now of the Ron and Don Show, and yeah, we are live from the Les Schwab Studio. What is up, Ron and Don Nation? Hey, don't forget we're licensed brokers at Windermere, so if you need us, just reach out to us. How can how can they do it? Yeah, it is a historic time to be a real estate seller in the Pacific Northwest. In fact, a lot of people are cashing out of the home they bought here decades ago and buying multiple properties in other states. So if you have thought about being a seller, contact me directly, ron at windermere.com. We can send you a seller's book that I wrote, and then we'll do a run it on sit down, get a strategy together for you. There's never been a better time in our lifetime to be a seller than right now. Hey, you guys, coming up on, the, on this episode, I'm really excited because you get to meet one of my very good friends. And his name is Mike McGann. He was a detective with the Seattle Police Department. And they call him a shoe ladder. Like, he's, he's an old-school detective. And, in fact, uh, there's a story coming out, I believe, on Netflix about one of the cases that he worked on uh, in robbery with a world-famous uh, robbery bandit. And, in fact, maybe we'll visit that here in a moment with him. The other thing that I love about Mike is his great mentor, a great real estate mentor, because when he was young, a young police officer, he started buying up real estate with his overtime money. In fact, last year, I said, hey, Mike, would you be willing to sit down? There's an African-American uh, patrol officer that I work with that works for the state. Would you be willing to sit down and just talk real estate with him? Mike said, absolutely. They sat down. They had about a four-hour conversation. And in fact, this particular officer, Ron and I were on a Zoom call with him last week, and he said, hey... We're not looking at just buying, and he's still in his 20s, not one house, but we're getting ready to buy our second house, is he is thinking about building wealth, and Mike was a big part of that. I just pictured Mike in a room with one-way glass, a one light bulb hanging down in the middle of the room, yeah, having a four-hour conversation. Anyway, I told you guys a few weeks ago, our dumb truck, $50,000 dumb truck got stolen at one of my job sites. Uh, we've had a dumb truck now stolen a couple times, $30,000 in tools. I'm not telling you anything that hasn't happened to you. Anything he doesn't know about because he worked in robbery for an awful long time. In fact, the way that I met him when Ron and I moved back from New Orleans, all my furniture got stolen and he was my robbery uh, detective. So he was my officer, my detective. And finally, was it Mike's shoulder that you cried on when that <laughs> happened? When you broke into tears? Hey, Mike, you'll remember there was some signal because we found the bad guys and we don't, have, we can't frame the whole story. But I was supposed to give some kind of signal to the team, and, and, and I forgot to do that, didn't I? The buy sign. Yeah. It was the lifting of the hat that you had paid the movers the 10000 in cash, yeah. and you didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting around, and I, I, I thought, all these undercover guys have left me, and they're gone. They're waiting for the, the high sign. They forgot to give the sign. I didn't give the sign. So I finally gave the sign, and heaven and earth uh, showed right, up. The, the sign came a couple minutes late when you were standing over them. Yeah. And do you remember what you said? Uh, no, what I said. Don't mess with the Ron and Don Nation. <laughs> and I was like, looking up at you as I was sitting on this guy, cuffing him up. I'm like, hey, you need to step back. Yeah, I'd, slow I, your roll. I had been robbed by, by some movers. And, and, anyway, let's fast forward to today. 
you're retiring from the Seattle Police Department. I want to ask you why. My good friend Carrie, who is a recruiter for SPD, she just retired. She took a great job at a great company. She's moving out of state. Uh, I'm talking to a lot of young officers that are moving. In fact, we sold an officer's home the other day down in Beacon Hill. He's like, you know what? I love the people of Seattle, but I can't live in the city anymore, you guys. And he moved up to Muckleteo. I'm talking to a lot of cops that are still working, but they're planning on retiring early or maybe being a police officer in a different part of the country where they feel like policing is better embraced. Uh, I talked to a detective down in Pierce County the other day. He said they just lost five guys in Pierce County to Flagstaff. They're going to Flagstaff, and they're going to be on the police department there. The Seattle Police Department, I want to talk about its condition here in a moment, but, but, but <clears throat> why are you leaving, and what have you loved about the job? Um, well, actually, I have since retired. September 1st was my first retirement date. And um, I don't think there's any one thing in particular I loved about the job. I, I loved it overall. It was meeting people like you guys uh, on very strange circumstances. And I loved every day of going into work and just basically doing the job. And I used to tell people, I can't believe I get paid for this. But I had that attitude for about 34, almost 35 years. Can you maybe do what, in, from your perception, was the arc of those 35 years? Like, how, how did it change? What, what was Seattle like then, and what did it become? It's funny you mentioned that. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine on the phone while here, is that people oftentimes always asked why I chose Seattle. And each morning that I drove across the 520 bridge, I saw Husky Stadium. I saw the Olympic Mountains. They were snow-capped. And it was a beautiful sight. And I always loved coming into the city. I went to school at O'Day. I went to the University of Washington, lived in the Greek system, lived in Madison Park. I loved it. It was fantastic. And when I was a new police officer in 1986, we saw Seattle really take an interesting uh, direction. You know, that anything east of Fifth Avenue was considered, you know, bad territory. You had bad bars, you had drugs, you had uh, prostitution, you had a lot of problems. And over the period of time, you had Mayor Royer, Mayor Rice. They began this slow transition and really started to develop the, the downtown central business district. And you began to see the face of Seattle literally change. You know, Belltown was not a really desirable area to live in. You look at it, what happened there in the early 2000s, the, the boom, you saw the the, the tech companies move in down here. You saw Seattle really become cutting edge. You had the grunge era that put Seattle on the map with the local bands here uh, that really caused the city to take a shine. Because I interact with a, a certain nostalgia all the time uh, about the way things used to be, the good old days, and people, especially with real estate prices and stuff I know you're very familiar with. But I always try to pause for a second and go there was some good old days but there was also some bad old days like there south lake union in 1986 i wouldn't walk around there after dark no and it, unfortunately it's like that today is that you know we i think we reached our pinnacle point a few years ago with things were that were really good you know we had a grasp on crime you know the crime level was fairly low but then you began to see probably right around the time that we had those, uh, the three homicides in the jungle, uh, you know, probably four, five, six years back, that you began to see the, the, the transient population move out of the jungle into the streets. 
Then one more question. I'll throw it back over to Don. Is Seattle law enforcement more politically driven than other big cities in America? I think that it is. And I, I was blessed with the opportunity of traveling the country and seeing different law enforcement agencies. And I don't think I've ever seen a more command heavy department. Uh, we have more command personnel than the Washington Metropolitan Police Department uh, that were really that were really top heavy in that regard. But we're also uh, it's politically driven. Uh, that we have more layers of bureaucracy within the department. You go to a crime scene, you have very, especially let's say as an example, an officer-involved shooting, you have different layers of the internal investigations unit. You have the Office of the Inspector General. You have all these other watchdog groups that are there. And it's it's very political. It, it's, it, it's a mess. And they have different layers of tape, uh, crime scene tape when you, you approach. And if you enter those areas, they request a statement and why you're there. And then you'll get interviewed. And it's it's not a uh, really popular thing amongst the officers. Carmen Best, what was your what was your take on Carmen becoming the police chief? And then there was a march on her home in Snohomish, not once but twice. And and, and then the city council said, "We're coming after your retirement." And she said, "Oh no, you're not. I'm done." Now she's being interviewed by every police department, including NYC. Uh, and are they interviewing her because they're very interested in her as a police chief? Or are they doing that because she's black and it looks good on television to interview black people? As we just uh, discussed in our last podcast about what's happening with the NFL, a lot of black men get interviewed to be coaches, but they never actually get hired. What was your take on her because she was your chief at one point in time, right? Yeah, Carmen was also a friend. And I worked with Carmen and around Carmen and for Carmen. She was actually the robbery lieutenant commander at one point. And it was a pleasure to work with her. Um, unfortunately, I think she got tossed into that arena. And the, the question that's always really been asked of a chief, are you a politician or are you a police chief? And it's a hat in an area I think they have to tread very lightly in. Uh, but that's the path they choose. And so with that said, uh, I liked Carmen. I respected her. Do I think she was judged unfairly? I really do. I think she was judged really unfairly. Yeah. When, when you look at everything that happened with the chop, how, how should the mayor have handled that? And how, how could Carmen have handled that better? Or could she have? And if you don't, understand the chop we just had a summer last summer in seattle during covid the black lives matter movement march i walked through the chop and there was an area of seattle that was overtaken and they kicked the police and the fire department out and the city had to fight to get that back up on capitol hill uh there was fires it was violent same time some people tell you it was beautiful at least that's what the mayor said she said it was a summer of love uh and then all hell break broke loose and of course then she ended up not running when you look back at the chop, the summer of love, the city of Seattle really simmering and then boiling, what, what did you see? Uh, well, first, I, I, it was a, I think it was a bad time for the department. It really was because I, I think this past weekend we saw an article in the Seattle Times that was written about uh, the possible surrender of the East Precinct to uh, the Black Lives Matter group and making the precinct a community center. I was shocked about what I read in that article. 
but you have to understand something or something about uh, the whole ordeal is the chief, Carmen, reports to the mayor, and she is a political appointee and can be let go at any time. And so she has to follow orders. But I think what has his recently surfaced that to me is disturbing and uh, the such that we, we're always told that we want transparency within the department and accountability. And now we're seeing uh, Carmen's and uh, Jenny Durkin's text messages missing. So that was a little disturbing to see that because I think I'd like to see the truth come out about what really happened at the East Precinct. And I stood that line up there for several nights in riot gear uh, in front of that precinct. And it was, it was brutal. It really was brutal to see what happened. And I think uh, every officer, man or woman that, that, you know, wears the uniform and responds or reports to the East Precinct, I think they're entitled to an explanation. What was brutal? Uh, just that, you know, you're having rocks throwing at you, bricks, uh, shots were fired. Uh, and trust me, I, I'm not one that has ever stood a riot line before, and it made me a little nervous being in the riot gear. It was the first time I've ever had to wear it in nearly 34 years. Uh, my hat's off to those that don it all the time. But the robber unit and a couple other detective follow-up units for several hours held the front line at uh, the East Precinct, and it was a little unnerving to see thousands upon thousands of people march at you over, you know, as they came uh, eastbound over the hill towards the precinct, and then you're totally surrounded 360. Mm. A little unnerving. That's very unnerving. He's Mike McGann, former Seattle police detective. My last question in this segment, what is the chatter like in the locker room when there's a shift change, when across the street from the main police station is... 25 feet away is a homeless encampment with people panhandling and doing drugs, stealing stolen property directly across the street. I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall. What, what do you, what's, what, what's the conversation like? I think nowadays it's uh, the officers are just immune to what's taken place because they've basically have become puppets and they're told to just do their job and, that's what they do. If you if you go back a few years, it was shock uh, that you saw. Basically, if you remember, Macy's was downtown, the former Bon Marche. I think, and some of the officers actually told me this too, is that it went out of business because it was being you know bankrupt over all the items leaving the store, mm-hmm. and then they're allowed to hold a garage sale, you know, just a few blocks away with all the stolen merchandise. Uh, but most officers, I think, that work the central business district or that district car were upset by seeing what is has taken place. And the For transition. people that don't know, I'm not exaggerating when I say across the street. Where the patrol cars come out of the garage, it's 30 feet away? Yeah, it's fairly close. I mean, you can smell it. So, yeah, it's it's disturbing. I think that you are always watching your six when you go out of the building. Do you remember when you called me one day about the homeless encampment on James? Oh, yeah. You're like, and this is when we were on Cairo. You're like, hey, O'Neill, when are you going to do something about the homeless problem in Seattle? And I called McGann back and I went, but you're the police. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you on the other side of this.
Hey, you guys, can you believe this? We've been working with Les Schwab for the past 12 years, but Les Schwab has been around for 70 years now, right here in the great specific Northwest. In fact, they're celebrating with your chance to win a $700 prize certificate. That's pretty amazing. And all you have to do is share your Les Schwab story if you want to enter to win. And to do that, Ron, all you have to do is go to lesschwab.com. I know that I have stories. You have stories. Mine involves a giant nail in my tire, and they fixed it for free. You can go to lesschwab.com, tell your story, win that $700 prize. And while you're there, schedule a free pre-trip safety check right online. They will look at your wheels, alignment, brakes, shots, shocks, and struts, all for free. You can schedule yours at lesschwab.com or just stop by and tell them Ron and Don sent you. That is Les. Schwab tires. We've been doing the right thing since 1952. You can just tell that they uh, that they're just real genuine guys and and care about uh, who they work with and just feel like we you know we got we got some some more friends now. It truly is one of life's biggest transactions. If you're downsizing, upsizing, or right sizing, Ron and Don can help you buy, sell, or invest in real estate. It all starts with a Ron and Don sit down. Hi, I'm Ollie. Hi, I'm Emmy. Hi, I'm John Greenland. I'm Lauren Greenland. Hi, my name is uh, Anthony Kroll. Hi, I'm Gretchen. And I'm Byron. And we sat down with... with Ron and Don. Mm-hmm. They were more prepared. They paid way more attention to detail. Um, and then they just came in with a, with a lot more knowledge and were able to set those expectations up a lot better than um, some of the previous uh, realtors that we worked with. So, I mean, I was I was extremely pleased with uh, the the entire, uh, the sit down, the, the experience and, and the results, of course. There was a friendship that developed and a, and a, and a trust. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say a trust and then, you know, we yeah. have, we love them. It's been a hell of a lot of fun for one thing. I see them as, as friends now. I feel like they've made me feel part of this community and knowing that, you know, Dawn's just down the street is, is comforting. <laughs> we totally consider Ron and Dawn friends of ours now, and we do miss working with them. It was intense there for a little bit, but it's an experience that we'll always remember and have and... Um, and now lifelong friends. It's the Ron and Don Nation. That's right. <laughs> Don't forget, when you're ready to sit down and start your real estate journey, schedule your time with the guys at ronanddonsitdown.com. Ron and Don. <laughs> okay. You good? Yeah. Okay, let's get going. All right, you guys, welcome back to the Ron and Don Show. We're talking to, to Detective Mike McGann, dear friend, a great Seattle cop, also very smart when it comes to real estate. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Let, let, let's talk about me. Let's talk about this $50,000 dump truck my partners and I use in our business to restore old Seattle homes. And that's something, Mike, you've, you, you've done a lot of real estate stuff. And one of, the, one of the first things that you told me is, hey, you got to go get a truck, right? Yeah. Go get a truck. And our first truck, Bubba, got stolen. My son named that one. And uh, this truck then got stolen. On top of that, we had people break in. It's really amazing how talented these thieves are when it comes to stealing your stuff. They've taken over $30,000 in tools. We, we even built safe houses inside the homes that we have. Those all get broken down. I won't say how they do it because uh, I don't want to teach anyone. But we can no longer, in, in the construction trade they, call, they, they trade, they call it tooling out and tooling in. Our guys, every single day, have to tool in. 
And then when they leave, they have to tool out. Some of them that live in Seattle have been followed home and their tools are taken out of their truck. So they have to double tool out and double tool in every single day because it has to go from the truck to the house. Then they get up in the morning, it has to go from the house to the truck and the truck back to whatever property. And then think about these guys that are, that are working on dual properties. Uh, it's just mind-numbing. It is so mind-numbing. I was talking to a detective down in Pierce County the other day. He said they're dealing with almost 24 to 25 stolen vehicles a day. Well, can, can I ask this real quick? Because I just want to get a baseline. When you started in 86, if there was a call that came in that said $50,000 truck stolen, would there be like lights and sirens in response the same day? You, I will say this about the Seattle Police Department. They always gave good customer service. Sometimes you may not like what was served up. But you, if your vehicle, like your guy's truck being stolen, you would have had an officer out to the house that day. You would not have had to wait or get a phone call or uh, wait for a letter in the mail or an email or something, whatever they're doing now. But you, you got first-class service. You got an officer out the house that day. Yeah, and the, and the difference is now, so, so to jump back in, I called someone that I know on the command staff. He said, just, I'm going to be honest with you. There's, I said, there's a patrol officer that this is assigned to, but they're not the detective, the second responder, which is what you did. And he said, I want to be honest with you. There's so many cars that are being stolen now. There, there won't be a detective signed to it. He said, we have a license plate. We have four license plate readers that move around the city. He said, typically those are pretty effective. Uh, he said, but there's just, there, there's not enough officers right now. And there's certainly not enough robbery uh, detectives because what the hell? You're no longer there. So, so pivoting back to Ron's question, how bad is it right now in the city of Seattle in a place where we used to hear we had really good policing? We were the size of Boston. They have about 2,000 cops, so we should have about 2,000, 2,200. And in reality, I think we're probably down to seven, 800 cops right now in the city. I don't know the specific number of people that are what the department is actually down to. But I do know since I left robbery that the robbery unit has been tasked to responding to patrol calls. And, um, I don't think it was, you know, for, it was only a few times, but, uh, I know they were doing it to try and answer your question, how bad the city is right now. Um, uh, I've always felt Seattle was a violent city that, uh, at times people gauge, our success or our problems by the statistics we actually do have. And for example, um, I think in, in 2020, we were over 60 homicides. And in 2021, we were down to 45, 47 homicides. And oftentimes, and I know you and I have talked about this in the past, that people think, oh, the homicides are low, so we really don't have a violent city. And I always disagree with that. And I always think it's a slap in the face uh, to what I'm about to say is that the reason the homicide rate is so low in Seattle, it's, it's not really the job uh, that the police department's doing. It's, it's the job of Harborview Medical Center, that if you are shot or severely injured and you get there with a pulse, they will save you. You may not look good. You might be missing a limb, an organ, a chunk of your head, an eye, or a limb of some some sort, but you will live. That is their motto. But also, you know, you got to give a little credit to the Seattle Fire Department uh, that 
the that medic one program is the best in the world, just like Harborview is the best trauma center. And I, I believe in the world that they get there, they're good at what they do. And then a little credit has to be sprinkled on top to the, the Seattle police officers who get there and, and do some very elementary medical life-saving uh, techniques, whether putting on a tourniquet or pumping somebody's chest. If they can keep the blood flowing, they'll save you. So Mike, Mike McGann joins us, retired uh, detective for Seattle PD. I want to reframe this because I think most people listen to this show, and this is what I think. I work in the Pacific Northwest. I pay my taxes. Part of those taxes goes to law enforcement. When in the, in the 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 contract is when something happens to me, taxpayer, I expect to be able to call the cops, and that they're going to respond. They're going to do something. So, what has changed, or why is it so now? To where your car can get stolen, or I've had other stuff stolen. It's like, yeah, we'll get to you when you get to you, and 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 then other people just don't even report something anymore. Why? Why is it that way? Is there a reason, or ten reasons, or it's unknowable what the reason is? I think there's a multitude of reasons. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, as a taxpayer, you're entitled to your public safety. You really are. It's the it's the biggest budget within the city. I think followed by the housing. And you're entitled to good quality law enforcement in this city. And I think that's the duty of the government is to protect the people. And we're not seeing that. And whether it's a car or a bicycle or, you know, Christmas ornaments out in front of your house, we always used to respond. But over time, they felt, and when I say they, the administration and politically, the, the people across the street felt that it was not worth the time to go out on those calls. But we've also seen a large number of officers leave so they use that as justification for not responding. So does that manifest itself in you're in a staff meeting and, and someone will literally say, hey, guys, we're, we're not responding to, to stolen laptops out of cars anymore. Like yeah. it will just they'll just say it. Yeah, they'll, they'll tell you. And I, and I think what what has also happened is, you know, years ago when the Department of Justice came in, when Jenny Durkin was the United States attorney, they had a couple cases that was were questionable. So they brought them in and they did this reorg of the department and, you know, trained us on all these great things. But they also made it more difficult for us to go out and stop people uh, with re on based upon reasonable suspicion or probable cause or to make an arrest. And now it's getting to the point that if uh, that if you catch somebody, I heard this the other day, I found that this was very hard to believe, that if you catch somebody breaking into a car and the victim's not there, you're not allowed to take them into custody. Hmm. I, I've thought that was really i don't know if that's true or not but if that's the the, the direction the department has moved in well, the last let's four use months the example that i just gave if you saw someone back in the day that appeared to be homeless carrying a new macbook you could probably i imagine go question that person could you do that today no absolutely not i think the problem with the homeless and that we didn't get touched on earlier was they were originally enabled and now they're empowered and so it's it's hands off. It is hands off. So so I'm going to ask you a, a couple of quick fire questions. Some of these I may know the answers to. Maybe we've already talked about. It. I don't know. There's a van. Uh, when you leave, look for it. It's uh, it's five doors up the hill. It's completely stripped. It does not have a light bulb on it. It's been there for two months. The tires have been marked. The neighbors have called. The van still sits there. 
and, and, and I'm not talking about a van that someone was living in this, this, and, and, and it made me think of my truck and, and my truck maybe sitting on a city street like this somewhere. Why is that van still there? That's a great question. And this is what I mean. When I first came on in 1986, there was great customer service. That van would have been gone in an hour. And it was the duty of that officer in that sector or that parking enforcement officer to get rid of that eyesore. And now it, they, they, they will tell you they don't have resources. I, I think the resources are there to some degree, but they're saving them for the priority one calls. And this is not a priority one call. This is lower on the list. And I think things get swept under the carpet and forgot about. And a tow company doesn't want that because a tow company no. can't sell that at auction. It's the same with RVs. To decommission an RV, it's between $500 and $1,500 just to deal with uh, refrigerant fluid in those old RVs. So nobody wants to tow them. And everybody knows that. Living in our bushes. I didn't have a lot of crime in my neighborhood until people started living in my bushes. But I've been told by the city... These are not criminals. They are our own. They are they, these are people that are from here. They lost a job. They fell in hard times, and these are our clients. People living in the bushes in Seattle, they're criminals or clients. Well, I, I'm going to go for a third. They're more of an eyesore. And my big question is, I don't live in the city. I, you know, I when I got hired as a police officer, you know, uh, getting a home, interest rates were at ten percent. And I couldn't afford a home in the city of Seattle. So I had to buy outside the city. And um, I think what has, has gone on, we, we've just learned to like let those people accept who they are and, and let them be. But years ago, we used to be able to move those, those people on. And my big question now is all these politicians have run on promises. When are they going to start to deliver? I mean, our largest form of mental health treatment is in the King County jail. Uh, we're always told they run on hot topics, but they're not delivering. And I don't think you can use COVID that much anymore as an excuse. Uh, I, I would love to see something done with that because most, most of these people that I dealt with or talked to that lived in these tents or lived under behind the, the you know, the, the, uh, headquarters that they'd tell you that they, most of them were drug addicts and right to your face, or they're alcoholics, or had fallen on hard times, and, and, and the good portion of others have mental health problems. But there's really not much there, there's being done. I, I think people have a great outlook, and they're, they're great to get into office based upon those promises, but then they never deliver. Uh, let's uh, finish up this discussion on the other side of this. Hey, you guys, we want to thank everybody in the Ron and Don Nation that has been switching to Mitch and Mitch.loans. Mitch, I got to ask you, here comes 2022. A lot of people are thinking money's going to be way too expensive. I'm not even going to be able to afford a home. What are you hearing about money, finances, stock market, interest rates as we start looking at 2022? What does it look like? That's a great question. And everyone's saying rates will rise. But when we we have to keep in mind that rates rising is totally a perspective thing, right? Because rates have been, yes, two and a half, three percent recently. But when we were young <laughs> or when our parents bought houses, rates were 12, 15 percent. So still 
compared to that, rates are good. And we see rates going up, but rates will stay manageable and money's still cheap, guys. All right. He's Mitch Weeks. He's the official mortgage guy of the Ron and Don Nation. Go to Mitch.loans right now. Tell him you're with Ron and Don and you save half a percent on your new loan. Mitch.loans, NMLS 169-1573. All right, you guys, welcome back to the Ron and Don Show, our final segment here. Again, we're licensed brokers at Windermere, so if you need us, just reach out. The house that I'm sitting in right now, I bought this house for two reasons. Number one, because I was having a son. And one of the first people I told is my realtor, Sabrina. And one of the second person I told was this guy sitting over here, Detective Mike McGann. I said, hey, would you come look at this house? And he walked in this house and he said, this is an incredible piece of real estate. He goes, it's all about the view. You're going to love this view. You're going to love this house. Buy this house. And so I did on the, on the basis of what he told me uh, because of all the success that he has had over the years in investing in real estate himself. So I want to take a moment, talk a little bit about real estate. And whenever I talk to a young cop, and in fact, uh, Mike sat down, he was very kind with a young black cop that I work with saying, hey, I'd love to sit down and talk with him about real estate. And, and so we did one afternoon, which is really great. And we talked to this officer last week and he's working on buying a second home. Mike, tell us a little bit about uh, your your real estate journey and, and kind of... Cops make good money, but it's not a way to build wealth. And it seems like you knew that early on, right? Yeah. And actually, when I, I bought my, I bought a home and I think it was about 2000, 2001, that it was uh, like the home you had here. And uh, I rehabbed the home and brought it back to its original state. And I, I bought the home from a, a local broker and then she came back to see the house and was totally blown away. And because it had been a rental home, a a small 1,250 square foot home with a one car detached garage. But I saw the potential in it, what it could be. I was two blocks off the lake. I cleared up the yard, uh, turned the house into a a great home and uh, lived there. And when she came back to see it, she was so blown away that she offered me an opportunity to get into turning homes. Yeah. And when I say turning, buying, rehabbing, and selling homes. How did you do that as, as an officer? And where'd you, where, where'd you get the money to do something like that? Well, um, I think the first thing is I quit drinking. And, and uh, I had a second off-duty job. And I took that money and, and saved it and made sure I didn't carry much debt and had enough for uh, a next down payment or money to invest in a property and then my business partner would do the same so mike i gotta ask you if if you listen to the first two segments we did with you there would probably be people that are like i don't know i wouldn't want to buy real estate in that market uh and yet here all three of us are still wanting to double down on real estate in this market there's a lot of stuff that's broken it's it's relatively easy to point those out and to not know what the solution is um, are you still bullish on what it means to live and to work in the Pacific Northwest? I am. I, I still think there's some great buys here, especially I don't think you're going to find them, you know, on Queen Anne or Magnolia or Capitol Hill. But I think there's some areas in, in King and Pierce and uh, Snow County that are ideal uh, that you might find some homes that need some TLC. And if you have those creative juices and you let them flow and you can go into a home and, and see what it needs and, and redo it and save yourself some money, 
you can really turn a nice project. Knowing what you know, do you have any optimism that, that we can get rid of some of the eyesores that we've discussed? Yeah, I would suggest if you have some of those eyesores in the neighborhood, I'd buy them <laughs> because I think you can um, you can turn them. I don't know about turning them, a lot of these homes into rentals anymore uh, because the the rental pendulum has kind of swung the other way. And especially if you get a shady renter in there, I'm always leery about that. But if you can turn and burn a home uh, and make a good profit on it, I, I think it would be ideal. I, I was meaning more about the societal ones. Do you think that the, the eyesores that we've already discussed, are you optimistic that that could? I think in time, in time, I, I think we always talk about the pendulum swinging the other way. I just don't think the pendulum has gone all the way. And I think we all know that things will get worse before it gets better. Mm. Yeah. And I think that once that pendulum hits the other side, hopefully it will come back. For a young investor that's out there thinking about, uh, and you, you've done really well for yourself. In fact, you're building a home out of state, this amazing home. I've been to some of your homes that, that you, you started restoring homes, but some of the, the, some of the homes that Mike has built, or some of the finest homes that I've ever been in. It, they're, they're, they're really amazing. I, I know that some of your friends call you Chemical Mike. Why do they call you Chemical Mike? And let's talk about forcing appreciation on a property. Because even though a lot of us out there aren't contractors and, and maybe we can't run saws, there, there's still things that we can do to add value to the property. And, and really what you're doing is you're just putting money in your bank account and it's compounding every single month, right? Why, why, why are you chemical? Who's Chemical Mike? Chemical Mike was a name that was given to me by a neighbor uh, when I rehabbed that house. And my objective after I got in the house is I looked around the neighborhood and I had a, a few people that really didn't tend to their yards. So I took it upon myself to introduce myself and asked if I could mow their lawns and get the yards under, you know, better, in better shape, <laughs> Re rehab the lawns, so yeah. to speak. Well, one of them caught me one night about 10 o'clock at night, sneaking my lawn spread or the broadcast spreader across the street. And as I was in the middle of his lawn, you know, pouring, you know, weed and feed down to kill the dandelions that would blow into my yard. Mm -hmm. And uh, he caught me and he says, I, I, I just caught you. And he says, you're chemical Mike. You're putting <laughs> chemicals on everything and you're killing us. And yeah. I was like, no, I'm just trying to kill the weeds. And I said it was organic and he didn't buy on it, but he <laughs> told me to quit mowing his lawn. But I, you know, I'm a big believer in curb appeal. I love a nice yard. I was ex talking to someone today that I, she was saying that, oh, I get my creative juices flowing when I run. I said, well, I get mine when I mow the lawn that I, I've always prided myself on curb appeal. And I've also learned early on that if I build a home, I don't build it for resale. I build it for myself because you will always find a buyer that will build what you have. But the key that I found for me was to keep the house in turnkey shape that you could be able, you can just walk from the home at any time especially when the right knock comes on the door and someone has cash. Well, your homes are a little ridiculous because when you walk into your homes, they're not, they're always staged. They're like, <laughs> they're, 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 they're perfection. Before you, before you go, and we'll bring it back to law enforcement, if somebody's listening and they're thinking about a career in law enforcement, but they're like, wow, what I just saw with the chop, uh, what I saw with the riots, I hear this detective, 
a very storied career in, in robbery. You got a Netflix special coming out on a story that, that you did uh, about Hollywood, the bank robber. So everybody watch that. Um, what, what would you say to someone that, that is thinking, because there's lots of recruiting right now. What would you say to young men and women out there that are, that are thinking about a career in law enforcement? Uh, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I think recruitment and retention of officers is going to be the buzzword we're going to be hearing for the next couple of years. And I think that if you're young and you're looking for an aspiring career in law enforcement, I would uh, be careful to pick and choose where you go. And I say that because there's different agencies that will offer educational incentives uh, that you can go and get a master's degree on, on the city's dime, they'll reimburse you, which I think is a, a great thing, for, especially for career enhancement. But there's other cities, too, that where they're not so political, and this is nothing against Seattle. I mean, I loved going to work up until the last, my last day there. As a matter of fact, I was out till 1 a.m. the night before I, re, I, I left. Uh, I would just be careful about where you go and make sure that it's your fit because you don't want to set yourself up for failure. If it means going to a smaller department that uh, offers better uh, benefits or they're part of the Teamsters now, you're seeing that transition. Law enforcement uh, agencies are going into the, the Teamsters union. Maybe that's a step in the, the right direction for you. So when you retire, you leave with medical or you leave with benefits or you, you, know, you, you can sit down and with a financial advisor that the city offers you and see where you're going to be in 25, 30 years. I love that. Man, thanks for that. I'm going to come visit you. I love the house that you're building. I love the career that you've had here. If people want to see on, on Netflix, and if they saw your face, they, you've seen Mike on the Discovery Channel as well. Uh, what's going on with net, net, Netflix? Um, spent the summer, um, early, late spring, early summer with Netflix. We filmed around Seattle um, regarding the Hollywood uh, case, which at that time in 1996 was the largest bank robbery in U.S. history. And uh, a production crew out of the U.K. was here. We spent some time up here on Queen Anne. And then we uh, went out to North Seattle, and they came back here in November, did some more filming in Olympia, and they're just about to, to wrap it up. Frame, take 30 seconds, just frame who Hollywood was real quick. And I, uh, people might remember seeing some of the story on Sure, uh, he was uh, he a, Seattle, a local bank robber that uh, turned his trait into, he went from basically mimicking Point Break, the movie we saw years ago with Keanu Reeves. He turned that into a profession and uh, took millions of dollars from local banks here in uh, the Seattle area. And uh, in the end, he took just about $1.1 million in a robbery, what we had been waiting for him. And yours truly and two of my coworkers uh, eventually shot it out with him. Do you, do you and, and I won't reveal anything here, do you talk about the other FBI agents on the call in the, in the Netflix? Yeah, they, they were interviewed. They were. Uh, yeah, everybody was interviewed uh, in regards to it. And it, uh, you know, we're uh, one of the, Producers on the uh, the net this Netflix story is the same one that did the one on Amanda Knox, and so he's well versed in a lot of different things. And uh, it was a great crew to work with, and I'm looking forward to seeing the. Do you know what it's called? It must be Hollywood something. Right? We don't know yet. Okay. Netflix will uh, 
they'll name it and they'll decide when it's coming out. Rumor has it it's more November of uh, 2022. They're doing some last minute uh, reenactment uh, uh, scenes in the UK. Mm. Uh, Wow. Yeah, it's it's been very interesting. They call him Hollywood because he lived in a tree and he was a master artist and he could put he he could wear any disguise and then he would disappear and they couldn't find him and then he'd reappear. Exactly. And then until one day they got in a shootout because they're waiting for him. That was back in the day when there were C first banks. Exactly. (laughs) And first interstate banks. Ron, I'll give you a final say here on the on, on the show today. Um. I enjoyed talking with you. I I, it, it, I have more questions now than I did when we started, but that'll be for another day. I would say all three of us can go get a beer, but you guys don't drink beer. So with that, <laughs> uh, if you want to learn how these two guys uh, did their real estate stuff, uh, do a Ron and Don sit down. Let's talk about it. Let's get you set up. Let's buy your first property and and uh, maybe buy your second or third or fourth property. Yeah, Mike's really humble, but he's done an incredible job building wealth for him and his family into the future uh, because of what he did as a young police officer. And he scrimped and saved and and suffered a little bit sometimes, too. Drove an old truck. So anyway, he's Ron. I'm Don. He's Detective Mike McGann. Look for that show coming out on Netflix, and and, and he'll be back. In fact, maybe we'll just have him come back and, and, and talk about that uh, at some point when the Netflix show is coming out. You want to do that? I'd love to. Yeah, love let's to. have you on. We'll do that. All right. If people want to reach out to you, I know you're not a big social media guy. You're a cop, but if there's someone out there thinking about being a cop, is there is there a way to reach out? I'm still available on LinkedIn, cool. and just by my name. And I, you're right, I don't do social media. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I welcome any time that somebody has questions. Hopefully, we can help them out and point them in the right direction. Whether it's uh, doing a house or getting a job. Sounds good. All right, you guys, thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe. You'll see the show just drop on your podcast player every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I want to thank Les Schwab for sponsoring today's show and also Mitch over at Mitch.loans. Yeah, Mitch.loans, if you're looking for a loan, he's your guy, Mitch.loans. Yeah, so for Charlie the Dog, he's on the floor. He's Ron. I'm Don. He's Detective Mike McGann. Here comes my little boy who's Station Boys. We will see you next time right here. Keep your head up, shoulders back, as I said. You're listening to the Ron and Don Show. Oh, they! On the Ron and Don Radio Network. Now keep your head up and your shoulders back. And keep blowing that trumpet, and we'll see you next time. Only! 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 On the Ron and Don Radio Network.